Early on the morning of April 13, 2011, Holly Bobo vanished into the woods near her house in Darden, Tennessee. Her brother Clint saw her through a window moments before kneeling down next to a man in camouflage in their yard. In the moment, Clint assumed the man was Holly's boyfriend, Drew. By the time he realized his error, it was too late. Holly wasn't seen again until her remains were found three years later. Since then, a man has been convicted of her murder, though questions remain whether the right man is in prison. Welcome to the Fact and Suspicion podcast. Tonight we will be discussing the abduction and murder of Holly Bobo. When Holly Bobo was abducted, this case received a lot of media attention. And it was remarkable because Holly's brother actually saw her, you know, being walked into the woods by this guy. And, you know, the police were on the scene within 30 minutes of her abduction and they could not find her. You'd think that some trail would have been left with that small of a time frame. You would think that. Yeah, that was that was one of the big questions about everything. People didn't believe the brother's story exactly, and there was a lot of stuff. Yeah, but since then, we've had investigation, we've had a trial and a conviction, and now there are new reasons that this case is so remarkable, because there are a lot of questions about the trial, uh, about the prosecution's methods, and a lot of people think they have the wrong person in jail now. Are there any alternative suspects? Uh, yeah, yeah, we definitely, there's, there's one big alternative suspect, and we'll get into that in a little bit. I just want to mention for a little bit, because when I decided that we were going to do this case this week and, you know, rehash Holly Bobo, I thought this was solved. You know, I, I thought it was solved several years ago at the end of the trial. Yeah, that's definitely what you mentioned to me when you proposed it, so I take it things are different now? really it's very different. I've done a really deep dive. I've listened to hours and hours of testimony. I've uh, actually read a book by one of the TBI investigators. So there's, there's a lot more to it, but uh, let's get started. Let's just, you know, kind of start from the beginning. We talk about Holly. Uh, so Holly Bobo was a 20 year old uh, nursing student and she lived in Darden, Tennessee. Everyone really seemed to like Holly a lot. She had a boyfriend that she was really close to named Drew. And uh, Drew had just actually given her a promise ring recently. So their relationship seemed to be great. And, uh, you know, then she was abducted. So I want to start. That happened on April 13th, 2011. And I want to start that morning. If you've listened to other podcasts about this, you've probably heard people talk about the calls and things that happened. But I have a uh, very strict timeline about it. So maybe that will answer some questions because a lot of people get very confused about this. well, I'm completely so, ignorant about the case, so... Right. Well, uh, it's just for any of the listeners that have listened to other podcasts, when I read articles and listened to other podcasts, this stuff was very unclear, so I wanted to lay out a timeline for this. At 7.18 that morning, Holly's boyfriend, Drew, texted her. See, he was on Holly's grandmother's property, turkey hunting, and someone had approached him and asked why he was there and if he had permission to be there. So, um, you know, Drew was concerned about that. He texted Holly at 7.18. 7.19, Holly responds to him and says, who? Uh, at 7.20, he replies and tells her who, but that you know, information has been redacted. Oh, okay. Because, you know. And then at 7.21, Holly 
calls her mother and, uh, and asks her about what's going on. And she has a couple more texts with Drew. And then at 741, she texted him back and said, yes, it's fine for you to be there. At 742, Holly tried to call her boyfriend, but he didn't pick up the phone. Now that's like all of her call history that she actually made that morning. Somewhere between 742 and 745, Holly's neighbor hears a scream come from the Bobo uh, property. They have neighbors, but they're not really close. You know, it's sort of a rural area. Right. And he couldn't actually see anything there. But he was on his way to work. And from what I understand, he actually had his ex-wife and their child riding with him. I think he was dropping them off somewhere first. And he hears the scream. It's between 742 and 745. He drives down the road just a little way and then calls his mother, who he lives with in that same home. At 7.47, he makes that call to tell her about the screams. Now, around this time, Clint wakes up to their dog barking. And he takes a look, and he sees Holly in the driveway. And she's kneeling down with a man who is wearing camo. Were they both kneeling, or was she kneeling in front of him? They were both kneeling. Okay. And um, he can hear them talking, you know. And, Does it seem you know, contentious at all? It, she seems upset. But he couldn't, they weren't what, screaming or anything? There was no screaming. And um, Clint probably slept through that initial scream right. that the neighbor heard because he, he was asleep and he was woken up by the dog barking over and over. So Holly does seem upset and he hears her say no, like in a kind of a sad way, he thinks. And, um, you know, he's still partially asleep. He thinks that this is uh, probably her boyfriend, Drew. One, because, you know, it looks kind of like she might be breaking up with someone right there, Mm -hmm. uh, just in the moment. And the guy was wearing camo, and he knew Drew was supposed to be turkey hunting. Okay. That makes sense. Uh, So he he just thinks they're breaking up. So 751 to 752, Clint makes two calls to his mom, but she doesn't answer. Uh, She's already at work, so she can't pick up, I think. And uh, somewhere in this time frame, that uh, neighbor, the, the mother, has called Holly's mother as well to let her know that they heard a scream, right? So at 7.52, after Clint calls his mom for the second time, he texts her and uh, tells her to call him back ASAP. I think Clint knows something's going on and he wants to see if his mom knows what's going on with Holly, but I'm not sure. This is a little confusing as to, to why he seemed worried right here, right? Okay. Uh, at 7.56, the mother calls Clint back and uh, asks what's going on with Holly. And uh, he tells her, you know, she's outside with Drew. It looks like they might be breaking up. And the mother immediately says, that's not Drew. You need to go outside and shoot him. Wait, I mean, there's a couple questions there. At first, how did she know that it wasn't Drew? And why would she immediately go to shooting him? Now, this is a bit questionable, but she would know that's not Drew because Drew was supposed to be across the county turkey hunting, and she'd been discussing that with Holly already this morning. Now, I guess, you know, Drew could have left the turkey hunt and come straight over there, but I can see why she would doubt it. But she's also probably upset because she just heard that a scream came from from her property. Right, she'd just gotten the call from the neighbor, right? Right. And, um, you know, I've heard a lot of people say... You know, she's really jumping the gun there. It sounds like maybe a little. A little, but just to be honest, I mean, I definitely know people 
that if they think something's wrong, someone's at their house, they don't know at 8 a.m., they might answer the door with a gun, something like that, right? Right. I mean, we both live in the South. It, it happens. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And if she thinks Holly's in danger, you know, maybe it's best to go out there, you know, with a gun to make sure everything's okay. I don't know. A lot of people think that, that Holly's mom knows something else here, but she's never mentioned anything like I that. I mean, that's certainly that what it think. sounds like, that she has some information that, that we don't. Mm-hmm. But, but we don't have any information about that, and she's never mentioned anything like that. I don't see why she'd have any reason to withhold it if she did, though. So No. So, you know, Clint uh, goes and looks back outside, and he sees Holly and this man she was talking to walking out into the woods together. And this guy's sort of got his arm on her, but it doesn't look like he, you know, he's not dragging her out there or anything. Uh, but Clint does think this is really weird. So he goes and he, he grabs his gun and goes outside. They're, they're gone, but he does see a puddle of blood next to Holly's car. And so he's panicked and thinks something terrible has happened. And he calls 911. Uh, do they suspect so, the blood had something to do with the kneeling from earlier? I'm not sure about the kneeling. Maybe she was attacked, something along those lines. But they did test the, the blood, and it was Holly's blood. Do you know how much there was? From everything I've read, it was sort of a small little puddle of blood. It wasn't a big, it wasn't a big amount okay, of blood. Okay. Now, the call between Clint and his mother was 756, okay? At 805, that neighbor that called Holly's mom, she actually pulls up into their driveway to check on what's going on. And she sees Clint, um, he's got the phone in one hand where he's on with 911, his gun in the other, and he's walking back out of the woods because he's been trying to, you know, see what was going on out there, trying to find Holly. And then at 8.10 a.m., the police are actually on the scene at that time. Okay, so what I don't understand is, if Clint went out there, I mean, if he saw them walking towards the woods, and then he went and got his gun, how did he not catch up with them? You know, a lot of people have asked that question. I mean, it seems like a uh, reasonable question to ask, honestly. It, it is a reasonable question. Uh, now, what I know happened is that Clint may be moving just a little slow here, but... He goes back inside, like he said, he put on some pants and grabbed his gun. And I guess they move pretty quickly because, and maybe he should have given chase. Maybe he didn't go as far as he should have trying to find them. But the investigators are pretty sure that Holly's abductor had a vehicle close by. So they're pretty Uh, sure it was planned then. Yes. Yeah. There was a vehicle close by. And because of the pings from Holly's cell phone and how fast she was moving away, right. she had to have gotten into vehicle very soon after leaving there. Because, you know, you have the police on the scene at 810, and immediately they're calling AT&T to get a ping on this, right? So was there a clear trek from the woods uh, to an open road? You know... I and mean, they would just about there, have to be if that's the, if that's the working theory. There were theory. a few options on that. They could have moved through and gone kind of back behind the property. And I believe what was back there was an old logging road. Or they think that the um, the abductor could have actually parked on the side of the road close to the Bobo's driveway. Because it was, from what I understand, sort of a long driveway. And you couldn't really see necessarily the side of the road from the house. And just kind of cut through there to the vehicle. Okay. But, you know, they had to have had a vehicle close by to get her moving that fast. 
And, you know, they immediately started searching right there around the property and couldn't find any trace of, of Holly. And they couldn't get a trail. I, I don't know why, but they just couldn't find anything. They didn't even find any more blood? Uh, no, they never found any blood in the woods. I believe there were a few more spatters there in the driveway, but it wasn't a ton of blood. And they did determine that was Holly's blood. Okay. Now, Holly's phone continues to move around. Uh, you know, they're tracking it with pings till 925. And that's the last communication with the phone. You say move around. Does that mean it wasn't going in a straight line? No, it wasn't. Okay. It wasn't. It was, you know, making turns and going different ways there. Okay. So um, at 925, they think that's when the abductor pulled the SIM card out of Holly's phone because they found them discarded. Uh, I think the phone was on one side of the road and the SIM card was on another. And they think that's when um, when he, you know, pulled the SIM card out so it couldn't ping anymore around 925. That seems to show some level of sophistication, right? It does, yes. Now, in the following days, Holly's lunchbox was found. Her, you know, her cell phone and SIM card were found. Then there were some receipts with her her name on them, and I think there were some of her school papers as well, just sort of found scattered around the on you know the side of the road, different places. Okay. Now. Some people have a theory that maybe Holly was throwing the stuff out of the vehicle, trying to leave breadcrumbs for people to follow. But most people feel like it was just the abductor trying to get rid of everything and didn't want to leave, you know, one bed of evidence anywhere. Gotcha. Now, there were a lot of people involved. They did a lot of searches. They never turned up Holly or any really good evidence. The FBI's behavioral analysis unit got involved and they did a profile. They said this was likely a lone perpetrator, someone that would be socially awkward. And he'd likely done this before he had experience in doing this type of thing. Does that match the person who's in prison currently? No, not remotely. So I have a question here and you may not be able to answer it, but do investigators, do they have a theory about whether Holly knew she was in trouble because she seemed to have left with the person willingly. Do they suspect that uh, that she knew she was in trouble before getting into the vehicle? Yes, because she did scream at the beginning. And oftentimes with cases like this, when, uh, when someone abducts a person, they will lie to the person they're abducting. They'll say, you'll be okay if you just come with me. I'll take you where you need to go afterward but you're going to come with me right now. Right. right. Anything to either get them in the vehicle or just without incident. Exactly. He, he probably had a gun or something like that on her and he told her to be quiet or he'd kill her. Something along those so lines. So that, that could have been what was actually happening that her brother perceived as them walking together. Right. Is that, is that what you're yes, saying? Okay. It, it definitely could have. Clint actually said he thought that the man was carrying a deer grunt in his hand. A what? But that could, a deer grunt is sort of like a something that deer hunters use, like a call, sort of. I, I guess I must be a particularly poor southerner then, because I had no clue. Well, I am no expert on deer hunting either, but um, some people have speculated that could have actually been a gun that he mistook for that. Okay. So there are no big updates in this case until three years later. Three years? When, when yes. the police were well, on are- scene within a half hour and her brother was chasing them down almost immediately? There were updates in the case. They had suspects they were following and things like that, but they never found anything until three years later. 
And that's when some ginseng hunters in the woods came upon Holly's remains. Ginseng hunters? Yeah, that's actually a thing that people do, um, especially in rural areas. Uh, they can go out in the woods and find ginseng. And apparently, I'm not extremely familiar with it, but that's something that you can't actually farm as ginseng. It has to grow in the wild. We're talking the herb, so right? The, the herb, okay. yeah. The, 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 they use it for supplements, right? And it's something that can you know fetch a decent bit of money if you're able to get some ginseng root. So people actually go out and find it and sell it as sort of a side hustle. Okay. Uh, now, some people are out hunting ginseng, and they come across a skull. And they turn this in, obviously. They don't pick it up and turn it in, but they call the police. Uh, when the police get out there, they're able to locate some other bones. All in all, they found the skull, some ribs, and a shoulder blade. Also in the area, they found Holly's purse her keys. They found her wallet that still had her ID in it. And there were some other personal items that they found in that general area. Now, according to U.S. Marshal John Walker, who he was working with the cell phone pings, this area where they found her remains is an area where Holly's phone actually stopped moving for about 30 minutes. Ah. So does that mean they're pretty convinced that's where she was killed and not just where she was dumped? I mean, if the cell phone pings were still picking that was, up, that seems to suggest that. I think that's a logical way to follow that. However, if you go by the testimony in the trial and the person they convicted, that doesn't seem to line up. Oh, okay. So when you say they believe this, that's what some people believe and some of the investigators believe. But other people don't necessarily believe that's how that happened. I was talking specifically about the investigators with their theory, but... Right. Well, you actually had the investigators were split oh, okay. uh, on this because you had different you had two different main suspects and people were split on who they thought it was. Gotcha. Now, uh, the skull had a, a hole in the back of it and forensics believe that she was shot in the head with a 32 caliber handgun. Did any of the suspects own a 32 caliber handgun? For a long time, they were never able to produce a 32 that they thought could be the murder weapon. However, right before the trial started, they recovered a 32 caliber handgun that the prosecution claimed was the murder weapon. But uh, that's a bit questionable, too. I mean, it's awfully so convenient, for sure. Very convenient. We'll get into that a little bit later because it's part of the whole trial. Were there any um, uh, 32 caliber shell casings in the area? There were no shell casings recovered with her remains, okay. no. So I'd like to talk about some of the people that were suspected or, you know, people were suspicious of them early on. Okay. Right now. Uh, the first person is going to be Holly's brother, Clint. That actually makes sense. There were some, what seemed like some timeline discrepancies there when, when you were telling his story. Yeah, it was, well, Clint's story is strange. And... A lot of people have questions about why he didn't go outside immediately and do everything he could to find Holly. Yeah, it's just, it's hard to imagine that if he really went out there as quickly as he said he did, that he wouldn't have caught up with them. Right. Though, I mean, we do have the neighbor pulling up at 8.05 and seeing him coming back from the woods where he'd been looking. Right. Okay. I, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah, I guess. 
does that so he actually did go out there but does that line up with his like timeline though oh yeah it definitely lines up okay and it just shows like you know how quickly everything happened right but you know a lot of people just feel like he could have done more now he did go willingly with investigators uh they apparently strip searched him he surrendered his phone and his computer they went over all that with a fine tooth comb he passed a polygraph but the 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 biggest thing that cleared clint was the fact that you know he was there with police at 8:10 in the morning while Holly's abductor had her and her phone was moving around. Right, you know, yeah. They were able to track it leaving the house. Yeah, that pretty much conclusively rules him out then. Right. So, you know, he, some people think he may have still been involved in something that, that you know, caused Holly's death. But It sounds more to me like he just didn't respond quickly enough. And, and even then, I mean, he, he probably didn't exactly know something was wrong until, I, I'm sure he did everything he could. He did, and you know, he. I think he was half asleep when this first happened, too. That's right. He'd just woken up, so that's another fact. Yeah. So, but they they cleared Clint. Her boyfriend Drew was also a person that a lot of people were interested in, but Drew was pretty easy to clear as well. He was off turkey hunting that morning, and a lot of people questioned that. You know, he was off hunting. This person was wearing camo, but he wasn't alone. He was actually hunting with his dad, oh. and they were across the county. Did they have cell phone records to corroborate that? I have not heard about that, but I do know that immediately after the turkey hunt, Drew went into work. Ah, that'd be difficult to do if he had just abducted Holly, I guess. Yeah, that's it's a really solid alibi. All right, who's next? Uh, well, one person they looked into was the neighbor that heard her scream. But, you know, he went on into work after that, and he actually had his ex-wife and their child in the car with him. And he did call his mother to warn her something was going on, so he was cleared pretty quickly as well. It's just, it seems like a warning not to report crimes, doesn't it? It does, right. And then there was another man that was brought to the attention of the authorities uh, pretty early on. And I want to get into him more later. But I'll tell you a little bit about him. His name was Terry Britt, and he had a, a history of stalking young blonde women. Ah, so and, she fit his type then. Yes, and I don't just mean he was creepy. He really did stalk them. Had he and been in police trouble before? Yes, he he had uh, four convictions of rape, and you know he had attempted to abduct people before that. Uh, there was a lot about his past that suggested he could be involved in this. Did he have an alibi? He did have an alibi, but I want to circle back around to Terry Britt in a little bit. And right now I want to talk about the man who uh, was actually tried and convicted for Holly's murder. And that's Zach Adams. Zach was an early suspect because he had actually been heard around town saying that he killed Holly. Well, that that certainly gets you on the radar, I suppose. Definitely. Now, Zach was into meth really heavily. He was high all the time. And he was also sort of uh, an aggressive guy that liked to intimidate people. So, you know, one of the investigators on the case um, believed that this was just Zach sort of bragging about something he didn't do. Just being a Uh, tough guy. Being a tough guy. Exactly. 
Terry Dicus was the investigator I'm talking about. He he's actually the person that that wrote a book that I read that he believes that Zach Adams is probably innocent. Uh, but he referred to Zach in his testimony as an idiot that just was saying stupid things. So was he in the minority thinking that he was innocent, I suppose, amongst investigators? Um, Not at the time he wasn't, though later on it, there was a real split among people. And the state you know, ended up wanting to go with Zach as their primary suspect later on. But, but early on, uh, he cleared Zach Adams, uh, Dicus did. And everybody kind of went with that. Most people thought Zach was innocent at the time. So do you know when he was picked back up as a suspect? Did something happen? Yeah, I do. And I will get to that in just just a moment. Um, I I need to lay a little bit of groundwork before I I tell that. Now, Zach had a group of friends that he was with a lot. And um, it gets kind of confusing with all their names because all of their last names start with A. So I'll I'll tell you who they all are. But from then on, I'm just going to refer to them by their first name so we don't get too confused. Okay. Uh, but Zach, uh, you know, Zach Adams is who I was talking about. He has a brother named Dylan. All right. And I just want to go ahead and mention right now that Dylan has, I don't want to necessarily call it a mental disability, but definitely something people refer to as a learning disability. Okay. Uh, not overly bright. Gotcha. Uh, then there was also a man named Shane Austin that they were around a lot. And another man named Jason Autry. So you have uh, Zach and Dylan, who are brothers, and then Shane and Jason. And they're all suspected to be uh, involved in some way? Yes. Okay. And an- another early piece of evidence that pointed toward them is well, where Shane lives. Nearby? Uh, right. Well, remember how I uh, said that a lot of Holly's belongings were found kind of scattered along the road? Yeah. Uh, well, a receipt with her name on it was found very close to where Shane lives. It was on the side of the road, about 75 feet from his driveway. Ah. I mean, I'm not sure exactly uh, how much that means, but uh, I'm sure there's other evidence. No, and but that was an early piece of evidence, and it seemed to point toward Shane and Zach because they were already suspected because of what Zach had been saying. Okay, so the receipt's not what put investigators onto the... Onto their trail, it was the it was the comments uh, Zach had made, right? Yeah, it was definitely the comments Zach had made that did that. Uh, and also, another thing about the receipt is that um, that was not the only thing on that particular road. There was another paper or receipt, it's like before Shane's driveway quite a bit, and another piece past Shane's driveway quite a bit. Gotcha. So it it does seem that you know whoever was was throwing that out was just driving by. Okay. Possibly. But like I said, Zach was a suspect, but he was not the primary suspect for quite a while. However, well, he wasn't the primary suspect even after investigators discovered that he had been going around town admitting to it. No, oh, okay. no. At the time, Terry Britt was their primary suspect. And when I get back to Terry Britt, I'll explain why they turned away from Britt. Gotcha. But, um, you know, they did decide to go with Zach as a primary suspect. And the big turning point for this happened in 2014. Zach's brother, Dylan, uh, was arrested on weapons charges. And uh, this is where things get sort of strange. Something doesn't make sense in this case. For Dylan's charge, that carried a minimum, mandatory minimum, 120-month sentence. But for some reason, 
they let him go as long as he agreed to live with this retired police officer. That's which is something I've never heard okay, of. Right? Two questions. First, I mean, it seems awfully unmandatory to be a mandatory minimum. And secondly, why would they want him to live with a police officer exactly? Did this guy run like a halfway house or something? I can't find anything about that. It doesn't look like a halfway house. This seemed to be just sort of a one-off circumstance. No reason and given? I mean, it just it seems so I, weird. I can't find anything about the reason for that. Uh, now, he lived with that guy for about a month. And then he, according to that officer, the retired officer, he confessed to him about Holly Bobo's murder. And uh, that officer contacted the police and said, you know, that Dylan wanted to confess about this. So Dylan, you know, they, they picked him up and Dylan told them a story. Now, wait, was Dylan the I, one with the learning disability? Yes, he was. Hmm. Uh, and I'm going to go ahead and say that afterward, Dylan did say he was coerced into this. Okay. But from the news articles I've read, Dylan said at the time of his confession that he saw Zach, Shane, and Jason all at Shane's house. And Holly Bobo was there. Uh, she was wearing a pink shirt and she was tied up in a chair and she was alive. Could any of that description he gave of Holly be corroborated? Was she actually wearing a pink shirt, for example? She was wearing a pink shirt. Is there any other way he could have found that out? Uh, was it in news I articles at the was... time? I think that was all over the place at the time. Yeah. Because you see, you know, she was last seen wearing this. Right. Right. Um, yeah. I think that was pretty easily found. Though I've got to say, after I read Dykus's book, Dylan's story changed a lot over time. Uh, it would be completely different. There were different iterations of the story, I guess you could say. So I don't know if that was really the original story. That was the one prosecutors um, went with. They didn't actually bring this up in the trial. Oh, okay. So, I'm just want to tell you the story of the the first confession. Right? Wait, they didn't bring his confession up in trial. No, no, he didn't testify. They didn't want to because I think for one they had another person testify and his testimony did not match up with Dylan's. Oh. And then there's the fact that Dylan's story kept changing. So Dylan's initial story, according to Dicus, was that they had all taken Holly to Zach's home. And they'd all raped her. And according to Dylan, Zach put a gun to Dylan's head and made him, uh, made him rape her. That's kind of bizarre. Yeah, it's a crazy story. But uh, like I said, it, it, it's changed a lot over time. Now, Dylan did say later that, that he was coerced into this confession. How much later? Uh, you know, I really don't know how much later he said that. But I do know, you know I've read an article where his family said that he was held, I want to say it was something like 16 or 17 hours for questioning, and they didn't give anything anything to eat or drink, and you know he was tired, and he just wanted to get out of there. That's certainly you know? one of the hallmarks of a false confession. You know, and, and, and like I said, you know, he, he wasn't the brightest. Uh, I read an interview with an older cousin of his, and he said that Dylan had an IQ of about 70 and the mentality of a 10-year-old. Ah. Do we have a recording um, of the interrogation? No, no, I, I have that nowhere. Uh, mostly, I think because you know it was never admitted into evidence for the trial, right? Because I don't think they wanted to use any of Dylan's uh, confession for that. An another thing with uh, Dylan here is that Zach allegedly sent a message to Dylan via an an inmate 
And I've never could find a lot of details about this. So I don't know if, if uh, Zach was locked up and it was someone that was locked up with Zach, or if perhaps he had contact with someone that was locked up with Dylan, Mm -hmm. but uh, he uh, allegedly sent Dylan a message that if he didn't shut up about this, he would end up like Holly. Oh, or end up in a hole with Holly. I've heard a lot of different uh, versions of the message. And I can't find any proof of that anywhere, but it's definitely in a lot of articles. Oh, so there wasn't like a note found or something? No, it was just something that was said. Word of mouth. So I want to clear something up real quick, if you can. So back with Dylan. Now, to be clear, investigators already suspected the brothers before Dylan was sentenced, right? Yes, they did. And and that's one of the things that's very questionable because Dylan gets sentenced and he's sent to live with this police officer. Right. That, that's what I was curious about. That that seems really suspect. Right. So, you know, you know, he said he was coerced into this confession by the police officers, you know, that detained him for so long. But really, he was living with this other officer for a month. That almost seems like a month of coercion. That's the impression I got um, for, for sure. Now, did Dylan ever claim that he felt coerced by that police officer, the one he was living with? I uh, no, I've never heard claims of that. It was simply about the uh, the interrogators uh, interrogation. Gotcha. Though, I you know I I haven't heard a lot of what Dylan has said, and you know, like we said, if he does have a learning disability, he may not you know say a lot about stuff like that. Right. right? I just he wanted to clear some of, of that timeline up. I just wanted to make sure. Uh, for certain, if pol- if the police were already on to them before they oh, yeah, inexplicably they were, they sent him to live with this cop, they were very much already on to him, and they had uh, they had turned away from Terry Britt and towards uh, Zach Adams as the primary suspect before that happened. Ah, oh. yeah, I mean that that's suspect. Not gonna lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so that that's what got them all arrested, right? It gets uh, Zach uh, arrested, Dylan, you know. Well, he was already in trouble. He was arrested again. Uh, Shane and Jason were all arrested because of Dylan's confession there. So there are a few other uh, little matters to discuss here before really going to trial. Early on, prosecutors offered immunity to Shane Austin, who was Shane was, you know, one of the friends. Right. And um, they they offered that to him to testify against Zach and give them everything he knew. And later on, they revoked that immunity because they said that he wasn't being truthful with them. And then in 2015, Shane actually committed suicide. And did he leave uh, a note? Shane's, did he... he did not leave a note. Uh, there, he, he left nothing you know, to implicate himself in Holly's murder. But his lawyer said that he committed suicide because of all the pressure that was being put on him, like he was being unfairly targeted by prosecutors, and because the media had already judged these four to be guilty. I mean, in that situation, not being honest is prosecutors speak often for not giving me the story that I want. Yeah, and and that does seem to be the case here. But, you know, they made the immunity deal with him. I would assume that he would have had to have given them something they wanted for him to get that. But then maybe retracted some detail that was key. I don't know. We just don't know. Uh, moving along, this goes to trial. And one really, um, I, I don't want to say damning, but uh, a piece of testimony that really hurt Zach in the trial was that of his girlfriend at the time of the murders. Mm-hmm. 
Her name was Rebecca Earp. And Rebecca testified that she got into a fight with Zach one night at a bar. And he said to her, well, her words in her testimony was, he said he would tie me up just like he did Holly Bobo and no one would ever see me again. Oh, now was tying her up, was that consistent with what Dylan had said to happen to Holly? Uh, well, that was consistent with one of Dylan's stories. Oh, okay. Yeah, I forgot he changed his story. And, you know, she did testify to that. However, this same girlfriend was actually also Zach's alibi for that morning, strangely enough. That's bizarre. Um, because he was at her house, he and Dylan were both at her house, and she said that they were still asleep when she left for work about 9.30 that morning. So did they have some sort of falling out that made her a witness for the prosecution? Um, I mean, I guess that well, could have been the falling out. <laughs> yeah, that was the Apparently he beat her up and he threatened her like that. But she also did say that Zach later said that that was just a joke to see if she would turn him into the TBI. I'm not necessarily buying that. That's a little bizarre. That is bizarre, though this entire case seems pretty bizarre. You're going to have to agree. So was she the star witness for the prosecution? Because, I mean, I was thinking with if they didn't use Dylan's testimony and the other witness committed suicide, was, was she basically all they had? No. Okay. The star witness was actually Jason. So Jason sort of laid the whole thing out for them. And this is the testimony that, that killed Zach, uh, as far as I can tell. He said that that morning, uh, the, the morning of Holly's abduction, he went over to Shane's house. He wanted to buy some drugs, and he goes over and he buys uh, a codeine tablet. Uh, and I've actually read different places that when it was codeine, when it was morphine. Uh, but at any rate, he buys that, and then he goes over to his car, and he cooks it up with some meth and shoots it up. And after that... Zach approached him and asked him to help him bury a body. So their main witness was speedballing? Yes. Yes, he was. Okay. And um, Jason said that Zach told him that it was Holly Bobo. Jason had initially thought it was a man named Jojo that owed them money. And Zach said, no, this is Holly Bobo. And uh, in his testimony there, Jason said that it didn't mean anything to him because he didn't know Holly Bobo. However, this was contradicted by an early interview he did when he actually said that he was like a distant cousin of Holly's and knew who she was. This guy already is not sounding like the most reliable of witnesses. No, I, I don't think so either. But let's move on. Okay. So Zach, according to testimony, Zach and Jason leave in Zach's truck and Holly's body is wrapped up in a blanket in the back. And on their way to go bury this body, Jason mentions to Zach, he said, I didn't see any shovels and pickaxes. How are we going to bury her? And Zach's like, I, I don't know. I don't know. I didn't have a plan for that. So Jason suggests that they take her to the river. And, you know, according to his own words, they were going to gut her and throw her in the river because he explained that it was his understanding that the gases in the intestines were what would make a body float back up to the surface. So they thought she would just sink. That doesn't sound like a thing. Is that, is that a thing? Not that I've ever heard of, okay. but that's what he said. Uh, moving on there, uh, they get to the river and they're unloading 
Holly from the back of the truck when she moves and makes a noise and they realize that she's still alive. So Jason says that Zach pulls out a gun and Jason goes and looks down the road to make sure no one's coming and Zach shoots her in the head to kill her. However, for some reason, and he doesn't explain his testimony, they didn't dispose of her there in the river. They decide to load the body back into the truck and then Zach takes Jason and drops him off somewhere and Zach goes and disposes of the body elsewhere. That makes, or at least seems to make no sense. It doesn't. Um, Why would you choose was, to load a body back up and drive around with it like that? I don't know for sure. I thought maybe they thought that someone might have heard the gunshot, so they didn't want to take the time to gut the body like they said they were going to. But that wasn't explained in testimony. The defense didn't have any questions about that? I didn't actually listen to the cross-examination of him. Oh, okay. Uh, I listened to his initial testimony, but I don't know why they didn't grill him on that. Uh, now, another thing that's very convenient, if you'll notice here, is that Jason, according to his testimony, was not present for the abduction or the rape. Right. He was just there to see Holly actually murdered by Zach, and he wasn't there for he the disposal of the body. He didn't help of the body in that story. Exactly. That is uh, really it's convenient. very convenient, right? Little uh, And now Jason did say that he knew where Zach disposed of the body, and he gave them an area, and I do not remember the name of that area, but it was not the area where Holly's remains were found. So I'm also noticing that this story is completely different from Dylan's. It is. It's completely different from Dylan's, and I think that's why they didn't want Dylan to testify. They didn't want these two different stories. Because they didn't even bring Dylan's confession into this, right? Right. They they just went with Jason's testimony. For one, it probably looks bad if you're getting testimony from someone who's mentally handicapped. And for another, you know, this story seemed to explain things better, I think. I'm having a hard time with the fact that the, that the state's primary witness appears to be a meth head who, while he has firsthand knowledge of the crime, magically was not there while any of the crimes were actually committed. That seems so carefully tailored to avoid incriminating himself. It was. And another thing is that, well, now Jason did receive a deal for his testimony. He testified in exchange for leniency. And an interesting thing here is, you know, for one, uh, the death penalty was on the table here. So, you know, he, he probably would have really wanted to get his story out there and sort of exonerate himself from being part of the abduction. And he didn't actually, you know, commit the murder and things like that so that he wouldn't get the death penalty, but also for leniency. See, Jason was actually already in trouble at the time of this trial and had a 10 year sentence for some weapons charges. Those just sort of went away after his testimony. So also convenient. Convenient, right? Must be nice um, to have the godlike power of a prosecutor, huh? <laughs> yeah, I would think so. Now, moving on a little bit. Uh, now, Jason also testified that after uh, the murder, that Zach asked him to kill Dylan to keep him quiet. Was there any corroboration of this? No. No, there was no one who could corroborate it because just between those two. Okay. Jason also claims that the abduction occurred... When that morning, Shane, Dylan, and Zach went to the Bobo home because they were going to teach Holly's brother, Clint, how to make meth. 
Good to learn a trade, I suppose. And then uh, apparently Holly, when they got there, Holly came out yelling and screaming at them and it escalated. Clint completely denies this, by the way. He says he did not know them and he was not trying to learn to make meth that morning. So they said that they were coming to teach the brother how to make meth? Yes, they they came over to the house before eight in the morning, teach Holly's brother how to make meth. Did he have any prior drug convictions, any dealings with drug addicts that would lead investigators to believe that that was true? No, absolutely not. Clint actually, he worked at a nursing home. He was a counselor at a nursing home, I believe, and he was working on a degree in social work, which that doesn't mean that you know he's not involved in drugs or anything. Right. But he does seem to be a pretty clean guy. I read an interview with someone in his family, and they said that Clint had said he had smoked marijuana three times in his life before that, and that's all the drug interactions he'd ever had. It's kind of asking me to choose between the credibility of a of a meth head that's just admitted to being involved in a murder and a guy working on a degree that currently is employed at a nursing home. Right. Yeah, it's not exactly a toss up, you know? No. Uh, now, strangely enough, um, you know, Jason claimed that that's why they went there that morning. But later on, uh, while he's on the stand, he also testified that Zach had been seeing Holly's cousin, Natalie, as well, on the side from his girlfriend, Rebecca. And Natalie, according to Jason, uh, was working at a, as a stripper at the time. And she had mentioned to Zach that perhaps Holly would have a threesome with the two of them. And Jason thought that uh, that had gotten Zach interested in Holly. Now, for one, this does not mesh with the story that that the three of them went there that morning to teach Clint to make meth. This is getting really convoluted. Those are completely conflicting details. They are. And also, Natalie denies every bit of this. Now, she didn't deny that she had worked as a stripper, but she said she was not working at a strip club at that time. And she says that she was not seeing Zach Adams and she had never mentioned anything like that to Zach. What was the purpose of that story? I mean, they already had a reason for being there with, I mean, not a particularly believable one, but why add that on top of it? I suppose they just wanted to add a bit more motive, but it makes no sense to me as to why they would tell both those stories. Yeah, that that just that makes no sense. That boggles the mind, man. You can actually watch his entire testimony on YouTube, and that's what I did. I don't guess you got to the cross-examination portion of this, and I'd love to see what a defense attorney does with that. No, I, I watched, I want to say it was three hours of Jason's testimony, and that was all the prosecution. Though, from I'll be honest, from what I've seen with the defense attorney, she did struggle a bit in this trial. I'm not sure if she was a public defender but I think she may have been a little bit out of her depth with the prosecutors. It's possible. I mean, particularly if she was a public defender, she was probably overworked, uh, underpaid. I don't know if she was a public defender. I don't know that for sure. But, you know, moving along with Jason's testimony, he did also testify that Shane, Dylan, and Zach uh, raped Holly in a barn on Yellow Springs Road before taking her to Shane's house. And where is Yellow Springs Road in, uh, in relation to Holly's house and Jason's place? I am not exactly sure. I've, I've seen a map of this, 
but the rows weren't labeled. Okay. Though I do know some of Holly's belongings were found on Yellow Springs Road. And I did hear testimony from one, I want to say it was actually a police officer that said that Holly's phone signal did linger for a bit on Yellow Springs Road, but it was not where that 30-minute gap was. That was in a different area. I think the Yellow Springs Road linger was only like five to ten minutes. Um, So that doesn't exactly match up that all three of them raped her there in in that short amount of time. Had anyone else mentioned a rape prior to this? Uh, Yes. Now, um, at times, Dylan's confession did include rape. I I think Dylan's confession always included rape, but sometimes Dylan was involved. Sometimes he wasn't in his confessions. Uh, And and there's a little bit more about rape that I'll I'll get into in just a little bit. I want to... uh, I, I, I want to uh, continue like and get everything with Jason out of the way first. Okay. And there's not a lot more with Jason, but uh, interestingly, you know, as far as all his testimony goes, early on, uh, Jason offered up an alibi that he was uh, doing work on a house in another county, and his cell phone records actually backed that up, and his boss backed up his alibi as well that he was not around that day. And wait, the timing of this would have precluded him being involved in Holly's disappearance. Yes, it would have. So that's a bit confusing, though. Do they think the boss was lying? Or do they think the cell phone records were wrong? Or what? I'll be honest. I, I do think he came back into the county later on. If Jason was telling the truth, maybe his times were mixed up a little bit about what time he met with Zach. But, you know, according to his testimony, he had not gone to work that morning. I, I, I've listened to his testimony. And, you know, perhaps just if he was telling the truth, maybe he and his boss were confused about which day it was, you know, maybe he offered the, the alibi up front and then, you know, decided to recant it. Do you know if he had a physical timesheet of any sort? Uh, no, he did sort of under the table work. Gotcha. Okay. You know, so there wasn't any sort of physical timesheet. No. And I do know from what I heard about the cell phone records, he did come back into the area later on in the day. It was just a bit later, I believe, than when he said he was there. Uh, now this is not something that I actually hear I mentioned a lot in any of the articles, but I do know he had an alibi early on that was backed up, and then that was just sort of gone later when he testified. Well, anything more than surface level would require journalists to do work, so we, we hate <laughs> exactly. for that to happen. I, I I'm not trying to disparage journalists, oh, but yeah. I feel like I've I feel like I've done a lot more digging than almost any journalist has on this particular case. That probably wouldn't be difficult in my experience. Yeah. Now, um, another thing about the trial. Uh, we mentioned earlier that she was believed to have been shot in the back of the head with a 32 caliber. Right. Just before the trial started, a 32 caliber Smith and Wesson revolver was recovered, and the prosecution believed this to be the murder weapon. Awfully convenient. Well, was there any physical evidence tying it to any of the people involved? Well, it was tied to Shane Austin. Uh, Shane Austin had traded this gun to a man named Victor Dinsmore for 12 morphine pills, according to Victor. Uh, Victor was a drug dealer that sold a lot of stuff to uh, Shane, uh, Zach, Jason, these guys, right? Uh, Now, Victor says, you know, it was sometime after Holly's murder that uh, Shane traded him that gun for the pills. And then Dinsmore gave the gun to his wife. He wanted her to carry it to protect herself. Uh, Then later on, 
when uh, Zach and Shane and everyone came under scrutiny for the murder, Victor uh, disposed of that gun because he was afraid that may have been the murder weapon. And he, you know, threw it out somewhere. And later on, he led authorities back to where that was and they found it. Uh, Now, it was very rusted when they found it. And then they also tested it and uh, there was no blood in the cartridge as would be expected if, you know, someone shot at close range, there would be blowback and blood spatter on the gun. And they found none of that on that. Now, the defense argued that the gun couldn't have even been fired because it was in such bad shape. But again, you know, it's unclear exactly how long that was laying on the ground outside. So the gun could have been in much better shape when it was thrown out, though I don't know how much that would have affected if there was any blood inside the cartridge or something like that. Interesting. Yeah, so th- that's a little unclear, but you know they do have a, a gun that they argued was the murder. And how soon before the trial did you say this was found? I don't know exactly when it was found, but I do know that they had to postpone the beginning of the case a bit after they found the gun. Oh, okay. Because they had to process it. Right, okay. So it was, it was very soon before the trial. Uh, now, Victor Dinsmore, the, the man that you know traded for the gun, he also testified that uh, on the day that Holly went missing, he heard Zach and Shane arguing about, quote unquote, who was going to hit it first. Now that, you know, that could be, I suppose, talking about Holly, but that could mean something else as well. And they, he said they sort of got into a scuffle about it and uh, Jason broke them up and, and got them out of there. Have either of them uh, corroborated this or mentioned what they were talking about? Uh, no. Well, you know, Shane committed suicide. Oh, so, right. I, I forgot. Yeah. Right. And then, uh, you know, Zach isn't going to corroborate that at all. So. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> now, Jason did, uh, corroborate that story. Uh, I seem to remember, uh, didn't necessarily talk about it being said at Victor's house, but he did say that, that Shane and Zach had been arguing that day about who had hit it first, as far as Holly went. Yeah, that's Jason's testimony again. Right. So there's a bit of question about how reliable that is. I mean, that seems to be a common theme here, reliability issues. So I would like to mention some more things about the trial outside of Jason's testimony. And and this is not necessarily things about the trial, but just some evidence, right? Okay. Uh, There was a palm print left on Holly's car, and it, it was not Holly's, and they were able to rule out... Zach, Shane, Dylan, and Jason for making the palm print. That seems to hurt the case a bit. And none of the four of them fit the description that was given by Clint Bobo. If you'll recall, Clint saw Holly and the abductor walking into the woods together. Right. And Clint said that he was about six feet tall, about 200 pounds, and he had long, dark hair that hung down below his collar. And he also, because he heard his voice when they were in the carport, said he had sort of a deep, raspy voice. Did any of them match uh, that description? None of them matched the description, and none of them had a deep, raspy voice like that either. The closest one to the description was Shane Austin, because he was about six feet tall and, and about 200 pounds. He fit the build, but he had short, bright red hair. Also... Uh, they were able to trace their cell phone pings as well, the four of them. Uh, none of them matched up with the movements of Holly's phone. That's that's obviously not a smoking gun for innocence. Right. Because, you know, 
you may be smart enough not to take your your phone with you on an abduction. Well, judging by these clowns, I don't know if that's if that's a safe bet at all. I will say though that it's strange for someone, you know, however unreliable we think this these testimonies were, it's strange for someone to implicate themselves in a murder they weren't involved in. And you've got to realize, you know, Dylan implicated himself, uh, Jason implicated himself, and it seems that Shane probably implicated himself as well because he did initially receive that immunity deal. I mean, it's hard to imagine a good reason to go around telling people that you've murdered someone that you haven't. Uh, no, and I mean, maybe they all had something to gain from it, but that, that is another thing that I would say does sort of support Zach being guilty, right. but it doesn't prove anything. Uh, there were also two other men arrested involved with this, and their names were Jeff and Mark Percy, or maybe it's Piercy. How were they related? Pronounced. Uh, well, they, they, they're two brothers, but... Oh, I, uh, I meant how were they related yeah, to the they crime? Were, they were related to the crime because they allegedly had a video of Holly Bobo being assaulted by Zach. Did they ever produce this video? Uh, no. A woman named Sandra King testified that Jeff told her that Mark had a video of Zach sexually assaulting Holly Bobo. King asked to see the video, and she said that Mark showed her a portion of the video where Holly was tied up. And that's all she saw on the video. And she said that she never actually saw that phone again after he showed that to her. So we do have someone who claims to have personally seen the video. Yeah, she she does claim to have personally seen that. And she said that she did see Zach Adams at a glance in the video. Did she testify to this? She did testify to this. However, now the charges against Jeff and Mark were eventually dropped. The charges brought against them were for tampering with evidence and destroying evidence. Mm -hmm. But no one ever produced this video. Like, no one was ever able to find the video. It was never produced by prosecution. And Sandra's word is not enough to prosecute someone on. I mean, you can't just, you can't say, I heard you had this video. Now you don't have the video, so I'm going to charge you with tampering with evidence. Right. So the charges were eventually dropped against them. Uh, Jeff and Mark both denied the video ever existed. Uh, but Sandra did testify to that in the trial against Zach. That, that was allowed in, this, this story about the non-existent, maybe existent video? She wasn't the only one that testified about it. Uh, they had several people testifying about a video that was never, never produced, produced in court. I'm, I'm surprised that that was allowed in. I, I know. It, especially, she also testified that the video had Zach sexually assaulting Holly, even though she never saw that portion of the video. And she said that she knew this because she said that Jeff would never lie to her about what was on the video. That was her evidence. Yeah. And that seems to me like that's complete hearsay. I'm not exactly sure what the legal definition of hearsay is. I know it's somewhat different than how it's typically used colloquially, but I'm still surprised any of this was allowed at trial. I agree, especially when you can't produce the video. And there were other people that testified about this video. They said that they had seen a portion of a video where Holly Bobo was tied up or where Zach was having sex with Holly. And there were people testifying that someone told them that they saw the video, again, which is complete hearsay. 
I, I don't know how it was allowed in. And another thing, Man, this that is sounds like an absolute this, clown show. It it really does sound like that, doesn't it? And something else that really struck me about this is I'm curious about how well the people in the video were able to be identified because this was 2011 and I know cell phone cameras were pretty good in 2011, but you have like a homemade, basically sex tape of a, a rape. I don't know how high the quality would be on that. I mean, can you Probably really make not out great. who's, could you really make out who's in that video? But I'm thinking that, you know, Zach was going around town and he had bragged about, you know, he's the one that killed Holly, which it, that's very bad. It looks terrible. Not proof of anything, though. But that's a rumor that's going around. And then all of a sudden someone produces a sex tape of, you know, a tall, thin guy with dark hair having sex with a blonde woman. And all of a sudden this is the rape video, perhaps. I got into this. Smartphone game a little late. I didn't get my first one until 2012. I'm trying to think what cell phone cameras would have been like at the time. I'm sure they were sufficiently advanced enough that theoretically such a video could exist. But how great the quality would be, I mean, I couldn't say. Doesn't seem like it'd been great. Like it would have been great. No, and everyone saw this video, as far as I recall, on a cell phone. So, you know, the screens weren't great back then, didn't have great resolution. I, I don't know if you could really identify someone 100% in a video like that. That's a good point. Now, did you know how many people claim to have seen it? I don't know how many there were. I couldn't find a full transcript of the trial, so I'm piecing things together from uh, news articles. And there are actually several YouTube videos of testimony, but I've probably listened to nine or 10 hours of testimony. And there was a lot more that I didn't get through. So I don't know for sure how many people claim that, but I know there were multiple people that either claimed to have seen the video or someone told them that they saw the video. This entire thing with the video is just really sketchy. Again, I'm just shocked that this was allowed into a courtroom. I mean, no one could produce it. No one could produce it. I'm shocked that they even arrested the two brothers you know, when there was no video and no proof of a video. Yeah. Other than, you know, just one woman's word. Now, did all of the people who said that they saw the video claim to have gotten it from the same source? No, no. It was all, you know, this person showed me the video or this person told me they saw a video on someone else's phone. It was different people all around. What? Then how were they sharing it? I mean, it's not like you could put something like that up on YouTube. No, it doesn't make sense at all. Like, you know, maybe one person sent it could you text anything that big back then? I'm not sure if you can text anything that big now, man. I don't know how you would have transferred the file. You know, now that you mentioned that, I have no idea how that would have happened at all. I mean, that's why I asked if they all got it from the same source, because at least that would make some sense. No, they didn't. So I have no clue how that would have been passed around. That doesn't make sense at all either. I didn't even think of that until just now. I mean, until that seems like a it, huge so. flaw in, that, in, in those stories. It, it really does. But the, the video didn't seem like a, a good source of evidence at any rate. That was, I don't know if I would have even brought it into the trial, to be honest with you, if I was prosecution. But It seems like utter garbage, to be quite frank with you. Uh, Zach was found guilty, though, even though this trial was crazy. He was given life without parole plus 50 years. And the death penalty was actually on the table for this. I read in a news article that he actually made a deal with the prosecutors after he was found guilty, but before sentencing to stay in jail the rest of his life, just to get the death penalty off the table. 
Did any of the other actors uh, get time? Yes. Dylan, that's Zach's brother who has the learning disability. You know, learning disability. Uh, he got 35 years on an Alfred plea, actually. Wait, that's and that's when you admit that the prosecution has enough evidence to convict you, but you don't actually admit to it, right? Uh, yes, it is. It's, it's basically pleading guilty without admitting your guilt. Yeah, I remember that from the West Memphis 3 case. So. I think also that you can make an Alfred plea. Like, you know, if you want to make a plea deal without actually admitting your guilt that uh, an Alfred plea is applicable for that as well. Yeah, I suppose that makes sense. And then Jason was sentenced to eight years, but was only required to serve 30% of that because of his uh, working with prosecutors. Uh, He got leniency for that. He was actually already supposed to be serving a 10-year sentence, and that was just sort of erased for his 30% of eight years. And he was released in September of 2020. Actually, he's back in jail, though, because in December of 2020, he was arrested again on uh, possession of meth and uh, rifle. I guess uh, being the star witness has its perks, huh? Uh, It seems so, but also seems like he squandered that. But you can't think stupid, so. Yeah. But yeah, it was just, it's really crazy because Zach was convicted with absolutely no physical evidence. Yeah, I'll I mean, be honest, did, I'm not particularly impressed with the state's case. No, they they did have a, a body, they have remains, so they knew that Holly was dead. Her DNA matched those those bones. They did have a gun that they claimed to be the murder weapon, but I don't think, I mean, there was no way to prove that was the murder weapon. And for some reason, the death penalty was even on the table for this with all of the inconsistencies. That makes no sense to me either. But I would like to move on from that and talk about the other suspect, who was Terry Britt. Okay. This Um, is the guy that we're going to get back to, right? Yeah. And a, a big part of the defense's case was that there was actually more evidence that Terry Britt was the murderer than there was for Zach. Well, that wouldn't take much, to be honest with you. Uh, no, it would not. And uh, Terry Britt is who uh, the investigator Dykus uh, actually believed was the murderer. He was the guy that wrote the book you read. Yeah, he, he wrote that book. Uh, now let's let's talk about Terry Britt for a while. He actually exactly fits the description that Clint Bobo gave. Now he's that's the right height, the right build. He had the long uh, black hair. But actually, shortly after Holly's abduction, he cut his hair. Also Um, interesting. Yes, definitely. And he has a long record of stalking young blonde women and of rape convictions. He actually came to the attention of the TBI because one of Holly's cousins that actually looked a, a lot like Holly came to the TBI and said, there's a man stalking me uh, and he's been stalking me for quite a while. Uh, she'd started seeing him uh, in a white van just after Holly's disappearance. The The weekend after that, I think was the first time she noticed him and she probably noticed him because she was scared because that had happened. Right. And she wasn't the first person who had reported this. Uh, no, no. People had reported him stalking them for quite a while before this. Had he served time for it at all? 
uh, he had been in jail, I know, on four different convictions. I don't know how many different times he served, but he had been in jail for other things besides stalking and rape as well. Okay. So. Uh, but now, th- this cousin of Holly's, uh, she'd seen him in a white van. Oftentimes, it was late at night. And he'd even been near her house. One time, he was following her down a road, and she was on her way home, but she noticed him, and it scared her. So she uh, went on past her road and then you know, doubled back another way. And when she got back close to her house, she saw his van close to her house. Oh, that's creepy as hell, like, man. It was already there waiting for her. So he knew where she lived and everything. And that was not the only person that uh, brought him to their attention. Now, she had gotten the license plate number off the van at one point because she saw that same van at a gas station getting gas and she copied down the license plate number really fast. Good on her. And it was Terry Britt's van. Uh, so this guy was another, a real scumbag. Real scumbag, really creepy. Another of Holly's cousins also brought him to police attention. She reported to the TBI that a couple weeks before Holly's abduction, two or three weeks, Terry Britt had been inside of a Dollar General staring at her and Holly while they were shopping. Now, uh, and how long how him, long was this before Holly's disappearance? About two or three weeks. She wasn't exactly sure. She just remembered it had been recently that that happened. Okay. And uh, now, as I said earlier, Britt did supply an alibi. He said that he and his wife were together all day that day. He was married. Yeah, he, he was married. Okay. Uh, I, I'll get into that. And there's some strange things about his marriage, too. But, I mean, let me go ahead. He had been with his wife all day, according to Britt. They had gone and bought a new bathtub because their other one was leaking. And um, he was actually seen in the afternoon by uh, a police officer that came by that he was uh, moving a bathtub into his storage shed. And the the police officer actually came by uh, because they were checking up on all the registered sex offenders in the county because of Holly's disappearance. Oh, so he was Um, a registered sex offender. Well, yeah, I mean, he had rape convictions. Oh, okay, I see. I, I thought you said that he had uh, convictions apart from rape. You meant, no, 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 you no, meant he, in addition to, okay. In addition gotcha, to, gotcha. yeah, sorry. He In addition to rape, he had convictions. Okay, well, that explains that. He, so the store where he claims they bought that tub has no record of either he or his wife buying a tub. Uh, not that day, not that week. And uh, he did, uh, later on, was able to produce a handwritten receipt for the tub, but the store he bought it from, they actually keep a carbon copy of every receipt they write. And they did not have a receipt for that tub. That's suspect. And, um, he had not been with his wife all day long. He definitely lied about that. Uh, they were able to track the cell phone, uh, data. And he and his wife were talking to each other on the cell phone that day from one phone to another of several times, which suggests they were not together. Right. They weren't actually able to track uh, his location because he was using a uh, pay-as-you-go type phone. He didn't have a contract. Okay. And with that kind of thing, you're not able to really petition a carrier to get ping data from it. I, mean, I think a you know? burner phone is what those are usually referred to as. Yeah, he was, he, he was using a burner phone. Okay. Which wasn't even his name. It was in his wife's name. But the, you know, the, the phone records do show they were talking to each other on the cell phone several times that day. Uh, now, he claims his uh, his wife never went into work that day, that they went by her place of work and 
his actual words in the interview were that she they went by her place of work and she let uh, this other guy know she was taking the rest of the day off. But obviously, if it's the rest of the day off, that sounds like he picked her up from work. Yeah, she was leaving. Was this corroborated? So, uh, what do you mean was it corroborated? The, the story about his wife uh, taking the rest of the day off work was that established? I was not able to find that information anywhere. I, I know that she did not go to. She was not at work. She definitely took some time off work that day, but I don't have all the information. Okay, I was just curious. But definitely, they had not been together all day long. And there was no receipt for the tub, anything like that. So it seems like his alibi is very weak at the least. Yeah, uh, no question. Now, let's, let's move a little bit forward with this alibi. Now, a few years before Holly's abduction, he was charged with an attempted rape in Jackson, Tennessee. He picked a woman up uh, to give her a ride, right? And while they're in the vehicle, he starts assaulting her in the vehicle. And uh, you know, she's terrified. If they come to an intersection with a stoplight, he has to stop. She jumps out of the vehicle and runs to a police officer to get away from him. Now, the really interesting thing about this case is that when that happened, Terry's wife was in the vehicle with them. Really now? Yes. So she might have been involved in his crimes. Uh, at least willing to cover them up. Now, um, I told you that he'd been in jail for other rapes in the past. Mm -hmm. Would you like to wager how Terry and his wife met, his current wife? Oh, no. You know, they were pen pals in prison, and when he got out, they got married. That's disgusting. It really is. So she's one of those sickos that's, like, attracted to crazy people. It seems so. Okay. And this uh, woman is his only alibi? Yes, she is his only alibi. Okay. Now, as I said, Britt had four convictions of you know, rape or attempted rape before this case. And if you just look at the, the statistics, authorities believe that only one in seven rapes are actually reported. So if he had four convictions, I mean, how many has he probably committed? It's a good question. So, you know, that's, he's, he seems like a dangerous person. Now, he was interviewed later on by, uh, by Dicus. And in that interview, at one point, uh, Dicus asks him, you know, what he thinks probably happened to Holly. Uh, so I guess that's sort of an interview tactic that they use on people. Yeah, yeah. And Terry starts telling a story of how, you know, Holly's good-looking girl, so he knows why they wanted to abduct her. And as he's going through his story, he changes the pronoun oh. he's using for Holly. And instead of saying her, he starts referring to Holly as it. You've got to be kidding me. No. And that's, I mean, at best, that is massively creepy, right? It implies guilt to me, but that's, it gets worse. Than referring to a human being as it? Yeah, there's, there are worse things I'm going to tell you about his possible guilt. Okay. So... They did get a warrant to search Terry's home and property. The couple had two pickup trucks and three vans. Cadaver dogs hit on a pickaxe and a shovel and two of the vans. Now, they did not find any DNA evidence matching Holly. Did it match anyone else? They did find something. I, I, let, me, let me tell you this. Okay. 
Um, in the two vans, they found two blonde hairs. Uh, now, neither Terry or his wife are blonde. And these blonde hairs were microscopically identical to Holly Bobo's hairs, but they did not match DNA-wise. Oh, okay. So, in Dacus' book, he says there's actually a 10% chance that uh, over time, Holly's, uh, the DNA in her hair changed through a process called heteroplasmy, and I'm not familiar with it. Yeah, I'm, uh, me neither. But because, you know, the the sample they were comparing it to was a hair taken from her hairbrush, so no one knows how long that had been there. Mm-hmm. But there was a 10% chance that that DNA could have changed and that could have been her hair. But, you know, there's a 90% ch- chance that it was not hers. Right? But it belonged to somebody either way. It did, and it was found in a van that a cadaver dog hit on. Yeah. And given the other details about how he was stalking women with blonde hair, that does not bode well for some poor blonde-haired girl out there. Uh, no, it absolutely does not. As I said, he matched the description to a T, and he actually had the same kind of deep, raspy voice. Clint Bobo actually picked Terry's voice out of a lineup. Really? And he said he was 80% sure that was the voice that he heard. Now, they also did a, um, a physical lineup, and Clint was not able to point out Terry Britt in that physical lineup. However, at this time, there was a lot. there were a lot of... In- People uh, with the state that were moving away from Brit as a primary suspect, and they were wanting to move more towards Zach Adams. I guess that the confessions right. tilted the scales there. The problem with that is, though, that Dicus's superiors didn't let him just do a regular lineup where where Clint could look at them, you know, sort of face to face through a glass. They made them do it through a security camera in the jail. And it was was at a weird angle and it was, you know, not good quality. And I guess that's because he didn't get to see him up close. I I don't know. That didn't make sense to me. I mean, I guess you could say they were trying to recreate the environment that he would have seen him in originally, but I've never heard of that being done before. I I mean, I'm not an expert on police procedures either, but that does seem really bizarre. But there was something else that seems even more damning. A U.S. Marshal... Uh, was talking to Terry Britt. He wasn't uh, interviewing him, trying to gain information, but I feel like he was just laying out, you know, what they felt like they had against Britt. He sort of laid out this entire timeline he thought he had because this this U.S. Marshal was uh, the one that was working with the cell phone pings. See, the Marshal Service has to deal with that a lot when they're trying to track down fugitives. So they actually had enlisted the U.S. Marshals to deal with their cell phone pings. Okay. And uh, this marshal was sort of laying out to Brit uh, their theory of the timeline and where they went from here to here to here. And according to that marshal, Terry Britt said to him, yeah, it looks like you've got it all figured out. I'll, I'll plead to it and you can close the case. So are the you, marshal... Are you serious? He did say, he said that. I but guess marshal denies that now. He denies it now. See, see the marshal wasn't there to gain... Uh, information that wasn't his role and he had to get the tbi to come get a confession and when he got back to the tbi he he wouldn't talk change his story change his story so it's really crazy that, that that happened but um the real the reasons there were a few reasons that the state wanted to move away from from brit as the main suspect 
And the main one is that they did wiretap his phones. And in his conversations with his wife, uh, it became apparent that if he did uh, kidnap and murder Holly Bobo, that his wife didn't know about it. So her alibi would have been legitimate in that case? I'm not saying the alibi would have been legitimate. I mean, uh, she, she probably been protecting him, but. would have been protecting him. But, you know, he he laid it out to her, I'm sure, because he said this later, that he felt like he was going to be a target for the investigation because of his history. So he probably, you know, told his wife, you know, if you don't tell them that you've been with me all day, they're going to really suspect me for this and I won't have an alibi. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Right. So, but it became apparent that his wife didn't know that if he did murder Holly through the wiretaps. So, you know, a lot of people in the TBI and the FBI at the time felt like that exonerated him. And they also felt like Clint was probably lying uh, because, you know, Clint's story, it doesn't make a ton of sense, right? The brother. Right. Uh, no, brother. it doesn't at all. And, and they thought he was probably lying about something that went on. And they thought, you know, there were probably drugs involved some way that, you know, uh, the family had gotten into some kind of trouble because of the way that Clint's story didn't make sense. And because of the way that Karen Bobo seemed to really jump the gun and tell Clint to go out and shoot the guy. Uh, they felt like she knew more than she was telling as well. I mean, I can understand that. Her story and, is a bit weird. Yeah. So the, the Terry Britt theory really doesn't go with that because in that theory, he would have been stalking Holly for a while you know, and just sort of like, you know, came out there laying in wait, waiting for her to come out And his intention was to take her and rape her. And that doesn't go with, you know, families into some trouble and there were some drugs involved, something like that. Right? That seems like such a stretch though, to like to make that like a primary theory. Yeah, it does. But, you know, apparently people thought that Zach was, you know, the stronger case. And it's probably because, you know, he was going around town and he'd said things about it. Right. Yeah. I mean, that definitely plays better with a jury. Yeah, so that's why they, they turned away from Brit. And, you know, beyond that, you know, there were just a ton of criticisms of the case altogether, even beyond, you know, them overlooking Terry Britt, right? The prosecution kept dropping charges and adding charges to the guys they had in jail, which is, I guess, just a tactic to keep them in jail. Again, the power of a prosecutor. I mean, it's not uncommon for prosecutors to do that either, but it's still underhanded. No, of course, yeah. yeah. Also, you know, the, these defendants, when they were arrested, you know, they were arrested and charged completely based on Dylan's confession. And, you know, his story changed several times and they completely ignored Dylan's confession in the trial you know, because it didn't match with Jason's testimony. Yeah, that's one of the strangest things about this. I mean, it, it was good enough for the arrest, but not good enough to take to court. Right. And that, that seems like a, a huge hole to me, right? The prosecution routinely failed to provide evidence to the defense. Like Brady and violations, you mean? Like discovery? Yeah, exactly. The, the defense actually filed uh, motions trying to force discovery, and the prosecution just ignored them. And then you have the fact that the TBI actually dropped their investigation of this case entirely at one point after heavy criticism and allegations from the, the DA that was involved in the case, that was Matt Stowe. He had accused them of covering up evidence, uh, investigating the wrong, su wrong suspects, moving too slowly, and they just dropped their investigation because the DA was being so hostile toward them. And they actually only resumed their involvement in the case after he recused himself from it and a special prosecutor was appointed. 
so the prosecutor that that was responsible for the trial at the beginning was not the one that actually went to trial? No, he was not. Oh, that might explain the discrepancy uh, between which testimonies were used. Uh, maybe. Uh, then, you know, there was a lot of hearsay allowed as testimony for the prosecution. We had, you know, all these people that were testifying. They knew someone that had seen the video. Yeah. So, uh, um, again, like, I, like, do you know exactly what hearsay is in trial? Because I know, like, I know that it's different in the legal sense than it is colloquially. Uh, no, I, I agree that that should not have been added, but I don't want to say hearsay necessarily unless I can be sure that that's what it was, would be in the legal sense. I'm not 100% sure on the definition, but... It definitely I'm, matches the colloquial sense of it, no question. Yeah, well, exactly, but like, I'm pretty sure that you cannot just testify on something someone told you about someone else. Does that yeah, make th- sense? That's my understanding as well, yes. Uh, because that's just it's too far removed. And you have all, you, you definitely have all the people saying, you know, this person told me this about that video, right? And I don't see how that's not hearsay. But you also got you know, Jason's testimony. He's testifying about things he did not see that Zach told him about. That seems to be hearsay as well. And the, even they were even allowing hearsay testimony on a video that no one was ever able to produce. Right. Right. Yeah. How is that? How is that even fair to the defense? Like no, these people are not. testifying. This video exists. How does the defense? I mean, do you it? haven't they established can't. that the video exists, and you're going to allow allow people to say that they've seen it. Right. They didn't establish the video existed, but they basically brought it into the trial as fact. How can the defense try to disprove that? Right. Yeah. It doesn't seem possible. Seems completely unfair. And then you you have the fact that this, this entire case seems to be built on the testimony of one person. It's Jason Autry. And, and we just said, you know, he not was particularly reliable. He's a meth addict. He apparently had reason to lie to stay out of trouble. One, because the death penalty was on the table for this case. You know, he was probably terrified of that. That's another common tactic by prosecutors, man. Charge stacking. Right. And he, he got leniency for testifying. He was able to you know, with his testimony, changed the narrative in a way that he wasn't directly involved with most of it. And, you know, he was already serving a 10-year sentence that seemed to just get erased when he testified. Yeah, I mean, he, he seemed to have every incentive to tell them the story they wanted to hear. Oh, yeah, definitely. Every incentive. And you know, I just, you know, I feel like it's almost unfair that we allow testimony from people to start with that are being given a deal to testify. Oh, I, I completely agree. I, I get you have to do something to get these people to talk, but how many of them lie because of that just to get the deal, right? Yeah, I mean, and the defense doesn't have that same luxury. No. They, they don't have the they, power to grant that sort of thing. No, if a public defender could, you know, grant leniency to someone for testifying, I think our trials would go a lot differently. Probably so, yes. Um, but, you know, and not just that, you know, not the fact that it was just built on one person's testimony. There was no physical evidence at all. And I don't think we can stress this enough. It was built on the testimony of someone who not only was, was unreliable, but was ha- admitted to being on drugs at the time. Oh, It wasn't that, just someone yeah. who used drugs. I mean, they admitted to being on drugs when they claimed to have seen this committed. Yeah, That's a big it, deal. Exactly. And, you know, every other trial I've ever watched... You have people testify that someone did something, right? But then 
you go through and you back it up with other facts like cell phone pings, you know, other witnesses that saw the person at this location, uh, maybe DNA evidence, uh, producing, you know, a real murder weapon that you can prove by some link that belonged to this person. Right. But they, they seem to have none of this. No, the only way they're even able to, to say that gun came from, from Shane Austin was a person's testimony. There was no, there was no registration of it or anything like that. Now, to be perfectly fair with that story, I don't know what incentive the guy would have had to to lie about it. The no, guy I don't who supposedly either. bought the gun. I, I don't either, and I'm not trying to question his credibility other than the fact that he was a drug dealer, right? So he, he was Which also criminal. Matters, but let's be honest. It matters, but I mean, but he didn't I seem mean, to get anything out of it, right? I, I don't think he got anything out of it. No, um, but uh, again, how do we know he's telling the truth? Just there's nothing to back up any of these claims in this te- in this case. Yeah, like as I said before, the, the prosecution's case is a mess. Jason very well could have committed this crime, right? Like I, I don't know. Oh, you mean Zach? Right? Uh, Zach. Zach could very. Well, I mean, well I guess Jason could have as well. Jason's what testified against. Zach, right, but. right. So could very well be guilty, but from the evidence you presented, I don't know that a jury should have convicted. No, I agree, though I think to a jury of just regular people that don't follow a lot of criminal cases like we do, I think Jason's testimony was probably pretty powerful. I I think what probably uh, hurt the most was just the admissions. Uh, Even if he was just being, uh, you know, a braggadocious douchebag, admitting to killing someone in the eyes of a jury, that hurts. No, no, it, it definitely does. And uh, the testimony from his girlfriend, too. That's right. That's right about that. Tie her up just like Holly. And that he had, you know, like beat her up and everything. And if he made I mean, the other, you know, if he made the other admissions, I, I I don't doubt that he said that, too. No, not at all. I, I don't think she's lying at all, especially because she never actually changed her story that he was there asleep when she left for work. Right. She didn't. I feel like she was being completely truthful. Yeah. She could have retracted his alibi if it was just for spot. Yeah. And she didn't do that. So I feel like she was being truthful and I don't, I feel like Zach's probably a pretty terrible person, but that doesn't, it doesn't make him a murderer or right. a rapist, you know? Um, and I'm not saying he didn't do it either. I, I am not making that claim whatsoever. I'm not going to write a letter to the governor of Tennessee. saying you need to pardon Zach. Adams. Right. No. Um, but I just feel like, I, you know, I do feel comfortable saying that I don't think there was enough evidence to convict him. No, I, I think the prosecution definitely, they should have had to do a better job. I, I don't think it, it probably shouldn't have ever gone to trial, to be honest. I mean, with, with the case they had, yeah, I'd, I'd have to agree. I, I, I Also, I have to mention that Zach Adams did appeal, but his appeal was denied in August of 2020. It's not surprising, our appeals process. You basically have to find some sort of procedural flaw you know, on appeal. Right, right. And... Uh, you know, I think they were pretty, you know, careful about, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's in this case, even if, you know, they didn't have much evidence. It's just somehow they managed to get a conviction with nothing tangible. Yeah. I mean, like I said, you know, uh, admissions like that, that they, it plays well to juries. So I know this has been a pretty a long episode and we've been to a lot of depth, but um, did I cover everything? Do you have any other did anything else not make sense? Did I answer all the questions? I think that just about covers it, man. Now, you've been pretty thorough. I mean, I think this is easily the longest episode we've had. 
Yeah, I just wanted to make sure I covered all the bases because when I first started looking into this and uh, I watched some YouTube videos, I listened to some other podcasts, I came away with a ton of questions of things that just didn't add up. And I set out trying to answer all those questions for this episode. And I, I got into a lot of stuff. And I just want to make sure that, you know, I have left no stone left unturned in this particular episode. Well, you know, I have nothing to compare it to, really, because I haven't heard anything else about this case. But I can tell you that, that from what you told me, while I'm not prepared to say that, that Zach is innocent, definitely doesn't seem like there's enough evidence to have uh, found him guilty. While I presented a lot of evidence that Terry Britt could be Holly's murderer, I do not necessarily believe that he was. I simply don't feel that the prosecution accomplished what was necessary to prove the guilt of Zach Adams. I don't believe that someone should be convicted of murder when there is no tangible evidence, especially when the death penalty is on the table. Sadly, I think there will always be questions lingering around this case. While I'm not willing to take a side, I will say that I don't think I could have cast a guilty vote had I been on the jury. <laughs> 